love must be rightly ordered. Have you thought about that? That you and I are actually created before the fall to be loved by God and others and to love. And one of the nasty outcomes of sin, that we have an internal nature from Adam of sin, is that those loves get disordered. Instead of loving God first and most, we begin to love other things that God has created as if they're God, and they begin to control us like God. And then that disorders how we love and don't love others. And so it comes as no surprise in verse 3 that Paul exhorts us to love God first. Because if we get love for God, if we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if our love for God is above and beyond all other loves, then all of the other loves get rightly ordered. And marriages get better, and friendships, and church, and so on. And so love God first, and then other loves will fall into place. Love God most, and then your love for Christ's people, his church, his beloved, should, will be God. It is. So what we're going to see this morning, though, is after our love for God, we... Because of this great love of God for us, we have great liberty and freedom in Christ. But this liberty, this freedom we have in Christ is to not be held above our love for each other. Love needs to be rightly ordered. We'll look at that more. I'm going to read all of chapter 8, pray from Psalm 119, and then talk a bit about who God is. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol is no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, let our cry come before you for understanding according to your word. Let our pleas come before you that we might know your word and be delivered even from our own sin. Let our lips pour forth praise because you teach us your statutes. May our tongues sing of your word for all of your commandments are right. 
Lord, we long for your salvation, and your law is our delight. God, please keep us from going astray like lost sheep. If we do, please seek us out and teach us to not forget your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I focused a lot on verse 6, and I want to start there this week. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I think it's the most delightful thing every Sunday to come and just think on God, to behold God, to contemplate who he is. So what I want to do is preach just who God is here for a moment, and then look at an application from this text of how prone we are to identify our sin, not as sin, but as a right, as liberty. That's what they're doing here. And then look at what it looks like to submit our liberty and love for others before closing with uh, verse 8 and commending ourselves to God. But let's begin with God. The Holy Spirit here begins by exhorting us to love God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then he moves on to tell us who God is. God is one God. He is God the Father who in himself has all existence and all things exist in him. There is one Lord, one Master, Jesus Christ, through whom everything that exists does. So my brief, or my hope in this just brief beholding of God is to encourage you to love God more. That is the outcome of every sermon, isn't it? That you leave here loving God more. What does that mean to love God? Well, it just means to enjoy who he is. It means to behold him and all that he is and delight yourself in him. That he would grab hold of your soul uh, unlike anything else. That's what I want this morning. And and what he says in verse 6 is really entering into the most mysterious, awesome reality of God and it is this, that God exists in himself. He is unlike any other being or thing in this universe. Every other thing, every other being that has existence has it because it depends on somebody else's existence, and that's God. God is the only being in the universe that uh, exists in himself. I wish I could put words to this. I, I don't even quite get it all myself, but There is nothing else that we know of like him. He has no beginning, he has no end. He's been and he he relies on nothing outside of himself for his existence. He has always been and he always will be. Uh, We are told that God is one. And one of the reasons we're told that is so that these people might be freed from any superstitions. We even have superstitions, don't we? Sometimes they come up in athletics, you try to do the same thing over and over again when you have a good outcome. Uh, And idols are nothing because there is only one God. And so we as believers, we don't even believe in luck, do we? There's no such thing as luck. There is a sovereign God over the universe. And so we don't have to rely on any superstitions. And instead, we look to the one God who is pure spirit, invisible, without body or parts, He is from forever unto forever. He relies on no one for nothing. In his own power, he exists. There is nothing else like that in this world. This is the one God. And so what Paul is here saying is that God is completely unlike us. 
do you notice that anytime we see any being in heaven worshiping God, they almost always worship him for his holiness? That is, when we're given insight into the heavenly worship of God with angelic, amazing beings around him, they're invariably praising him for his holiness. Holiness means that God is unlike us. He is pure. He is without any error or sin. He is higher beyond us. It isn't enough to just think that God is the greatest of all beings. He's an entirely different being than us, entirely separate from us. He's unlike anything else that we've ever experienced. He's so far above us that it's hard to comprehend. And so what do we expect? This is the reason why it should be a constant response to us thinking about God as some kind of awe, some kind of wonder. One of the reasons I really enjoy that documentary is it fills you with some wonder at this creation. Don't ever stop losing the wonder of God. Don't ever stop the awe of who he is. It's impossible for a preacher to put into words what we read here in verse 6. One of the things we should sense when we come away from this is complete, stunning, blinding, overwhelming awe of God. So consider him. What is he like in his holiness, in his existence, in his essence? We see here that God is unlike all others. God is God. God is God. And the one response you and I should have to him is to love him. And so do you. Do you love this God? Are you in awe of him? Do you have a fear of him? Do you love him? What Paul says about God here in verse 6 is utterly practical. Verse 6 is one of the most, I don't even know what this word means all the time, metaphysically deep verses in all of the Bible. And yet Paul goes from it to something immensely everyday, plain, practical in a tick. He moves from the deepest reality about who God is to the most simple ways that it should impact how you live. So when we talk about theology, it's, it's incredibly practical. We should never separate the truth of who God is from how it causes us to live. Paul applies this doctrine of God to the eternally serious issue of sin in the local church. The situation in Corinth is that there are, there are such a thing as stronger and weaker believers. That's utterly un-PC in our world today to segregate, to differentiate between the strong and the weak, but it's true. Right here among us are people who have stronger and weaker consciences. Stronger faith that allows them more freedom in Christ and weaker faith that binds their conscience and so limits their freedoms. Now, as I said last week, the gift of God of having stronger faith or stronger muscles is that you can take care of the weak. But unfortunately, because of sin... Too often, the stronger abuse their freedom to the harm of the weak. And that's what's happening here. So, idols are nothing because there's only one God and he's created all things. And in Christ, we have complete freedom in regard to what we eat and what we drink, provided it doesn't lead to drunkenness or gluttony. So apart from sin, 
in Christ, we have this incredible freedom. Bacon, pork. As I said last week, here we had meat that was consecrated to an idol. So just before it ended up on uh, the shelf at the grocery store or just before you'd walk into the restaurant and it was ordered for you to grill, it was consecrated to an idol. And Paul is here saying, idols are nothing. Go ahead and eat without any questions of conscience. If, if we had devil worship in Rhinelander and they had a restaurant and they were offering their meat on the altar of Satan, you could go into that and order a ribeye. No big deal. Why? Because God is one and idols are nothing. But for somebody who just came out of a lifestyle of idol worship, for somebody who was saved out of that, they have a very big issue differentiating between eating the meat and the worship of idols. They can't separate those as somebody with a regular, normal, stronger conscience could. So if they were to see a stronger believer eating that meat, they would think that they can eat it too, but they wouldn't be able to do it without going right back into the idolatry. And so defiling their conscience and even maybe causing them to walk away from Christ. To put it in everyday context, think of somebody who came out of a, a sinful, idolatrous lifestyle of drunkenness. Where they worshipped at the idol of drunkenness. And this person comes to Christ. They're battling their drunkenness. And they can't yet separate the good gift of God of alcohol and going right back into drunkenness. And so if a stronger believer were to be drinking alcohol in front of this person, it might cause them to go right back into it because they can't disassociate yet the goodness of God and the freedom to drink alcohol and falling back into the sin of drunkenness and the idolatry of drunkenness. And we could apply that to many things. They're too weak to do it. And that's what's going on here. And the stronger believers here in Corinth were aware of this issue for people and yet standing on their rights. Verse 9, take care that this right of yours. And so the stronger believers are holding on to their right and, and just abusing it to the harm of their weaker brothers and sisters. So that's what Paul is addressing here. He's addressing those who know this liberty and yet abuse it and go ahead and eat the meat right in front of those, making them stumble. Paul says, making them stumble, wounding, defiling their conscience, so they might even go right back to false worship and so are destroyed. What the Holy Spirit is here teaching us, that when we love God, this love for God is to spill out in our love for others, which may include you limiting your liberty for the sake of the conscience of the other. Liberty submits to love in Christ. Liberty submits to love in Christ. I want to talk about that more in a bit. But first I want to talk about how we in our sin are so prone to parade our sin as liberty. So I want you to consider yourself here, if you would. You yourself, let me use kids as an example. If you have children in your home, they're a delight. This is a total aside, but I just thought of it. Um, some of you whose kids attend government public schools are going to have the joy of having your children at home for the next three weeks. 
And I want to encourage you to see it as a joy. Because they're gifts given you by God. And so it's not a burden. It's not a trial. It's an opportunity. That's not in the sermon, but it is now. So um, if you are around children, one of the inborn fallen abilities that your kids are really good at, they have a PhD at this, of identifying their sin as a liberty. They'll sin, and then they'll try to convince you and others that their sin is actually a freedom in Christ. What do I mean? Let's say your son or daughter is doing something that's hampering a sibling from doing his or her schoolwork. And when you call them on it, they'll say, I'm just having fun. I have a right to have fun, and I'm using my right to have fun even though it's disturbing somebody else. Your child is masquerading. They're being inconsiderate as a right, as a liberty. And you and I do this too. Dennis, in the prayer, brought up something about pornography. That's because I think he knew I was probably going to talk about it here. I'm not talking, when I, when I'm, what I'm about to talk about, I'm not talking about actually watching full-on porn, but more like the soft porn, scantily clad women, sexually compromising scenes in media. It's porn, but it's the acceptable kind. Right? And let's say your spouse calls you on what you're watching. Or maybe another believer heard you watch a movie and they say, why would you watch that? This and this scene's in there. Why would you watch that? What would your response be? I can handle it. It doesn't bug me. You're parading your sin as a strength. You're parading your identifying sin and lust as a, as a virtue. That's what they're doing here in Corinth. They know they're sinning against their brothers, and what are they claiming it to be, that sin? A liberty. In Christ, I get to do this. They're, they're parading it as a strength, their own sin. Don't you meet yourself there? Another pastor that I looked at this week said, you and I are always interested in identifying our sin as liberty. You as a wife may say something very disrespectful to your husband and convince yourself that he deserved it and that you just need to stand up for yourself. So you parade your disrespect as a liberty. You as a husband might be neglectful and unkind to your wife and yet you'll convince yourself that she deserves it because she's not doing what she should do for you. You may not open your lips during worship and not sing, even though God commands you all throughout the Bible to sing and identify that sin as a freedom. I can choose to sing if I want to or not. And so we explain away our sin as a freedom. Let me give you an irony. I, I think this is true. You and I are utterly opposed to one thing identifying itself as another in our society. We are all pretty upset with males who identify themselves as females and compete against females and beat them. Because one thing cannot be the other. 
So we're decrying this. We, it is rightfully, should make you angry that parents would put a young child through sex change operations and so on because we know that one thing can't identify as another. It is what it is. And yet here we do it with our sin, don't we? We magically identify our sin as liberty, as freedom. We, we try to convince ourselves and others and maybe even God himself that it's, it's not sin, it's my freedom. I, I, I can do this. I have a right to do this. You have a right to do this. That's what they're doing here in Corinth. And look at the result. They're defiling the conscience of their brothers and sisters. They are trying to commend themselves to God based on what they do. They've become a stumbling block to their brothers and sisters. They are destroying their brothers and sisters in verse 11. They are sinning against Christ in verse 12. And all of the time, they have convinced themselves and others that they're right. That they're right. And so take care of that heart in you, brothers and sisters. Whenever you catch yourself explaining to somebody else how you were right, the very necessity to do that probably should indicate to you that you're wrong and that you cannot magically morph your sin into a liberty. Instead, we should just have the faith to agree with God that it's sin, confess it, and move on. So take care to agree with God as to what your sin is. Because you'll notice that unless these folks do not repent of it, what hope do they have? God is a merciful God. He is so eager and willing to forgive our sins, provided we don't identify them as liberty. So how do we apply this principle of submitting our liberty and love? That's really the main thing going on here. None of you have, there's no restaurant, there's no market, there's no grocery store here in America likely that you'll go and have to deal with food that you're going to purchase and eat that's been sacrificed to idols. But the only thing I could come up with is sometimes you go to a Chinese restaurant and they got a Buddha there. I don't even know if ours does in town. Does it? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Buddha's nothing. Kung Pao, enjoy it. Right? Buddha's nothing. So how do we apply this? How do, we, how do we deal with it? Well, first let me address some mistakes that I think are commonly made with this principle of submitting liberty and love because it, this can be abused too. It is right for you as an individual to submit your liberty, the freedom that you have for the sake of somebody else. But the flip side is that principle can be abused, and it has been abused in lots of churches with legalism, and it's being abused in our culture. I just want to talk about this. First, Paul is talking here just to believers. What's being addressed here is a love for one who is in Christ for another who is in Christ. Some have used this text to restrain what the church should rightly do for the fear of offending an unbeliever. You'll notice that there's nothing in this text about somebody who is just offended by your behavior. And oftentimes in the church, as pastors and elders, we hear, but 
What about an unbeliever? If, if, why do we do confession of sin? What about an unbeliever? That might offend them. That might turn them off. And they'll use this principle from this text to kind of back them up. That's not what this is talking about at all. Now, it's good to consider unbelievers in all that we do. We don't, we don't want to be unnecessarily uh, offensive. But we shouldn't forego doing what we should do as believers for the fear of turning somebody off. That's not what's going on in this text at all. Second, the issue in this text is the impact on a brother or sister's relationship to God, not about their physical health. It is good to consider physical health. And yet what Paul is talking about here, about what you eat and don't eat, has really nothing to do with its impact on your physical body, but everything to do on your spiritual soul and on your relationship to God. I want to bring that up because, you know, our world is pretty crazy about food. And I've talked about this before, about what you eat or what you don't eat, about eating the right thing in the right amounts, eating food that has been fed only this kind of food and free range and so forth. I'm sure that's all fine. But most of the concern I hear of people talking about that is just aimed squarely at your physical well-being, which, which is good. It's good. But why don't we ever consider it in relation to our spiritual well-being? Doesn't it show how worldly, worldly we can be in regard to this? We have almost no concern for impact of food and drink spiritually. It's almost all aimed at physical and again, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just asking you to look at it and say, why are you so concerned and spend so much time and so much energy and so much research and so much money on things that are going to pass away real quick and, and not near the same effort and focus and energy on your relationship to Christ? I think this should be convicting here. Paul doesn't mention your physical well-being at all in this text. He cares more about how it impacts others and how it impacts others' relationship to Jesus. And so when you regard food, think of, think of that. Third, as I said, there is such a thing as a stronger believer and a weaker believer. And it isn't wrong to say so. Just consider the Corinthians receiving this letter and reading it in front of the congregation, which is what would have happened. Everybody knows who Paul is talking about here in the congregation. <clears throat> Everybody knows who the stronger believers are eating meat, hurting the other believers are. And they're looking at them. And everybody knows who the weaker believers are who came out of the idolatrous lifestyle. Everybody knows. And it isn't shameful to bring this up. It can be very loving. It isn't harsh. It isn't judgmental. And so it's helpful to know who you are, to be honest about who you are. And so one of the ways you can mistake this text is to not see yourself as you are. Are you a stronger believer who sees complete freedom in regards to food and drink and other things? If so, then, do you have to limit yourself somewhere for the sake of somebody else's conscience? Are you a weaker believer who has issues of conscience where God's words gives us absolute freedom, then you should recognize your weakness and take great care for your conscience. 
So see who you are here. Fourth, probably, do I want to say it like this? I think so. One of the greatest ways this text is abused is to, to use this as kind of a, but what it, what a, a potential abuse. This case here is real, not potential. What I mean is, you'll notice that the weaker brother is actually physically present seeing the person eating the meat. Verse 10, if anyone sees you, okay, this is what's happening. They were actually, actually observing it. Sometimes a third party wants to restrain the behavior out of, of another out of a potential, probably right-hearted but wrong-headed attempt to protect somebody potentially from something that could potentially happen. This has often been the case with alcohol in our culture. Right? Because alcohol has been abused and it has caused real harm, a third party will try to discourage somebody's freedom because it may potentially hurt somebody else. And that isn't the case here at all in this text. Okay? We ought to be careful of limiting somebody else's behavior, of tisking them into submission. That isn't the point Paul is making. Fifth, and finally, in just cautions of using this, our culture is taking the principle here and turning it on its head. Have you heard the term intersectionality at all in our day? I mean, seriously, raise your hand. Have you heard that term? S- some of you have. Okay. Um, what is happening in our day is our culture is is trying to divide us up into oppressed and oppressor. Okay? And so the more ways that you're an oppressed person, the more power you're supposedly given. So if you're a female, you're oppressed by males. If you're a female of color, that's like, two oppressed categories, and you're doubly oppressed, and so now you have more power. But if you're a gay black female, right, or a poor gay black female, and you get what I'm doing, right? And so what our culture is saying is if you're in any of these uncountable number of oppressed classes, you have a right to be the one in authority and power. And and the, the oppressed people mainly white males who are wealthy and straight, they just need to shut up and, and hold their tongue because they're the oppressed. You got no rights. If you're a Christian, it's really bad. And you just have to ta- have your rights taken from you in order to no longer be oppressed and let the oppressed people get more rights. I- you're tracking with me here, right? I'm not maybe saying this as well as I could, but you, get, you see what's going on here, right? And so what they're doing, though, is, is they're demanding under the threat of law these rights to be taken away for the sake. 
where in this text, Paul is urging the stronger brothers to lay down their rights for the sake of love. He's not taking it. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's, not, he's not using law to take a right. He's urging them to do the right thing. Here, here's why. Love always requires freedom. Okay? Love always requires freedom. Our kind of, this intersectionality, when it coerces behavior, when it demands it under threat of law, there's no more possibility for love. If you see somebody in our community who is weaker than you, impoverished, whatever, and you are forced under law to give them a meal or to provide them housing, you can't love them anymore. It's impossible for you to love them because your freedom's been taken away. But if you, of your own freedom, see them in their need and help them in your own freedom, then you can actually love them. And so it takes what Paul's here and, and turns it absolutely on its head. The motivation for limiting your freedom can only be love. It can't be demanded. It can't be coerced. It violates love. And so take care if you are the weaker of being demanding. This text isn't giving rise to your right to demand, but to patiently put your hope in the Lord. So that's enough of that. How might we actually apply this to life? As I said, you're not going to probably eat in a restaurant or purchase food that's been sacrificed to idols. So how do we apply this principle? Well, the issue here is idolatry. The, the issue here is idolatry. And, and though we don't worship stone idols or idols made of wood, we all struggle with idolatry. All right, so it's March Madness. I can use this right now because it's been canceled. Again, how many of you are basketball fans and really look forward to March Madness? We really do. It's a blast. Okay. But you know that sports can become an idol, correct? I mean, people really have given themselves over to sports and it controls them as if it's God. They live their lives for it. They invest their fortunes in it. They break relationships because of it. It's an idol and it really destroys what would that mean for you if we had a brother or a sister in our church who was really once in the grip of the idolatry of sports? And they've been saved, and they know it, but they can't yet break the connection between the good gift of watching March Madness and them going right back into that idolatry. What, that, what might that mean for your freedom as a believer who doesn't have that problem to care for that brother or sister coming out of an idolatry to sports. You see how you might apply this here? Right. And, and we can go to any issue here. There may be people who really struggle with the idol of appearance. And they've racked up tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt because they're so invested in how they look. Clothes and nails and hair and food and supplements and surgeries. They've just, 
given themselves over to that. And that was an idol. And they come to Christ and it's no longer an idol, but they're struggling. How might that might you think about him or her in their idolatry, in that struggle, in that connection of the good gift of appearance and the idolatry of it? How might you have to limit your freedom if you know that there's a brother or sister like that? It could be sex. It could be finances. It could be work. It could be anything. So this is very applicable to us. Could be hunting, educational choices, and on and on and on. How might you have to limit your freedom for the sake of your brother's, sister's conscience? Because if we love God, and we do, if we love this one and only triune God, the, the one in whom has all existence in himself, the one who exists forever and ever, without beginning, without ending, without increase, without decrease, the one who is perfect in every way. If we love him, then what does it look like for you to limit your freedom in of yourself, not under coercion, not under demandingness, but for the sake of the conscience of your weaker brother and sister, wherever that might be? If you would apply this principle to your marriage, wouldn't it help? Where are your... What, what we often do in marriage is we um, expose and use our partner's weakness to gain an advantage rather than submitting our liberty and love to them. You know what I mean? We poke them. We know they're weak in an area and we bring it up in arguments to defeat them. What if instead we submitted our liberty and love? Your children have these weaknesses. How does that you as a Christian mom or dad cause you to consider them? It really causes you to become a very considerate Christian is what it does. How do you do that? Well, let me close with verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. You and I have this insane, internal, heart-level, strong desire to commend ourselves to God by what we do or what we don't do. Think of the word commend here as like lines on a resume. I read this analogy. I'm stealing it. Um, Commend here means you having the ability to be in the presence of God and accept it. It's, commend means to be welcomed by God. And what we do is we take our resume and we write on it, I don't eat blah. I do eat blah. I don't drink blah. And we hold it up to God and we say, see? See God? I eat the right things. I don't eat the wrong things. I watch the right things. I don't watch the right things. I wear the right clothes. I don't wear the wrong clothes. See, God, see my resume of all the good things I do and all the bad things I don't do. I am acceptable to you. I am commendable to you. And so we, we 
create this list of all of these ways that we should be acceptable to God. I watch this news source, Fox News, and I don't watch that one, CNN. See, I'm righteous. I'm not joking there. You and I, if you are not honest with yourself, that's an actual real way that you think you're better than somebody else. And so more commendable to God. I don't watch Fox News or CNN. I'm better than y'all. I get my news from third-party crazy people on the internet. Well, Paul is here saying God could give a rip if you eat free-range chicken or not. It is not commending you to him one bit. If you bathe your self in essential oils, you are no more or less commendable to God. If you refrain from drinking alcohol, you are not more commendable to God than those who don't. What will commend you to God? What does commend you to God? If you flip over a couple pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to close with reading this. We have to deal with ourselves and try to hold up to God our resume of all these things that we do and don't do to commend us to God. And instead... In chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast on us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. There they are, right? They're boasting about what commending to God. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for your, it is for God. If we are in right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, who for their sake died and was raised. From, there, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't constantly evaluate each other by what we do and don't eat, what we do and don't drink, what we do and don't wear. Even though we once regarded Christ according to flesh, we regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new have come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, who through Christ commended us to himself, who through Christ has accepted us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Even the trespass of you trying to recommend yourself to God based on what you do and don't eat. He's forgiven you that sin even. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have done with a list of things that you do and don't do to commend yourself to God. Be done with it. Why? For our sake. For your sake. God made Christ to be sin. He made him to be sin. God took all of your sin and put it on Jesus Christ on the cross. Who knew no sin? Jesus Christ is is the only one with a resume to commend himself to God. He's the only one. And what did God do with Christ's resume? 
that in Christ, by faith, you might be the righteousness of God. You might receive by faith the righteous resume of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will ever, ever, ever commend you to God. That's it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Forgive us for all the ways. Forgive me for all the ways that I try to do these things to commend myself to you, and they're nothing. They are nothing. Help us to be like Paul and count all of these kind of good things and bad things as nothing, as rubbish, as utter refuse that we might be found in Christ alone. That when we come before you, we would come with nothing but faith in Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't try to take a whole bunch of stuff with us to heaven, what we do and don't eat, what we do and don't drink, what we do and don't wear, and all of it. We would come simply with Christ, being clothed in him alone. And then out of that, God, help us to love one another. Teach us how to live this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.